Good morning once again at 7.33 nearly. While fear may serve survival by engendering appropriate physiological and behavioural responses, it can also be irrational. And uh, even at the best of times, I'm sure many of us feel that conflict within ourselves, knowing, for example, that something is not worth our fear, but feeling it anyway. Uh, In what category does our response to the COVID-19 outbreak lie? Let's discuss with David Ropeg, consultant in risk perception and risk communication at Ropeg and Associates, also author of How Risky Is It Really? Why Our Fears Don't Always Match the Facts. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks for the invitation from far away. And, and I can imagine, just on the basis of your book, it draws exactly on w- what I was saying. I, I mean, even something like um, watching a horror movie, for example. We, we might rationally know after watching that horror movie that uh, we're not likely to be victimised by whatever it is we watched, but uh, feel great fear anyway. Um, is this a, a, an evolutionary hangover? Are our minds just less powerful than our fear? W- what is it? Well, we do think more of our ability to reason and be rational than is actually the case with human cognition. We're just not nearly as smart as we'd like to think we are. We have that capacity, but most of the time we're operating more on instinct and emotion and feeling. And yes, in evolution's path, we had to learn what was potentially dangerous and make quick judgments about it. And we still do, based on the same characteristics of something that felt scary then. So with COVID-19, for example, um, any risk that's new that we're not familiar with, that we don't know about, that we don't understand, leaves us feeling as though we don't really know what we need to know to protect ourselves. We don't have control. We feel powerless. So a new risk like this, by default, will always trigger more precaution. Now, in general, that was a good way to survive. You know, if you saw a new something that was going to eat you, it might eat you. Best to treat it like it could eat you and then find out that it doesn't. But in our modern era, when risks are more complex and we have more information sources, sometimes it leads to bad judgments. Right. So that that feeling of control and sometimes that feeling of safety, whether it's also real or not, seems to be a very important factor here. Because we've we've been saying, for example, people are not scared to drive in their cars despite the very high rate of relatively high rate of uh, traffic deaths around the world every day compared with uh, this viral outbreak. Uh, So it's that feeling, well, if you're in the car with someone you trust or if you're behind the wheel, you have a little bit more say in your destiny than than a hidden virus floating around. Absolutely. I mean, if you have the wheel in your hand of whatever risk it is, you'll feel less afraid. So, for example, I... I'm going to guess that a lot of people in Seoul and around South Korea are walking around with masks on. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. So a mask is like taking the steering wheel in your hand. It's doing something. In fact, a mask is only good if you're a potential spreader to keep your droplets from your mouth spreading out. The only way you catch coronavirus or most of many other viruses is off your hand, having touched something that had one of those droplets on it. But it gives us the feeling of control. And that's just one example, Alex. There are many other um, emotional characteristics of COVID-19 that make it particularly scary. Let me just cite one other, if I may. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, We only have so much room on our radar screen of awareness, what we're paying attention to day to day. Um, 
And the bigger the blip is, the more we subconsciously think, wow, that one's important. We really better pay attention. It could simply be because Alex and your program and everybody in the media and everybody on social media is talking about it. But the effect is that subconsciously, if the brain has only so much attention span and the blip of something because of high awareness, the psychologists call the factor awareness, uh, we overweigh the fear. Another example. I, I would like to ask as well, though, about this particular outbreak and, and how uncertainty presents itself, because really there's been some room for demonization because the experts have been figuring it out as we go along. Even the incubation period and the necessary quarantine period seems to have been longer than we initially thought. And we were initially told that it wouldn't even spread between people. So to give the public some credit, uh, the, 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 uh, the goalposts have been moving as we go along. And that spreads both mistrust and uncertainty. And both of those are like gasoline on the fire. Absolutely right. And we should also note to give the public, you and I and everybody credit, when we're not sure whether it's a big risk or not, it is better and safer to be precautionary. It is protective to respond that way to a point. But now let me give you another example. The other day I was at my dentist. My dentist is having trouble getting masks so that they can treat people's teeth because they've been bought all around the world for people in Seoul and cities all around the world for coronavirus. That's an overreaction that has a health consequence, too. Yep. So it behooves us to get as much information as we can, but also to be somewhat precautionary when something's unknown. Yeah, we know that there is a potentially very harmful economic impact of, of reacting too cautiously. Because uh, the, the way we've just described it, it's sort of like, well, you might as well do what you can just to make yourself feel relaxed. The, the flip side is potential economic consequences if you stop spending outdoors and, and stop flying to various places that you're supposed to visit, etc. Are there any other potentially very harmful effects of fear or miscalculation of risk? The very biggest one of all, and, and let, me, let me speak to the economics first, there will probably be a short-term, probably short-term impact globally because uh, most of this risk is in China and they make a lot of the parts that companies around the world put together into the products that we buy. Right. But let's set that aside. You and I as people don't much care about economics. We care about surviving until tomorrow. And when we worry too much and that worry lasts for more than a couple of weeks, that worry does things to our body that is bad for our health. It raises our blood pressure. It weakens our immune system and literally makes us more vulnerable to infectious disease. Yeah. So over-worrying, persistent over-worrying, changing our body chemistry is chronic, is chronic stress and really bad for our health in and of itself. And that's a very important point to make, but uh, that itself might make some of our listeners worry even more. So coming back to this question uh, <laughs> of advice, if possible, you intellectually know something, but your emotions just will not let it go. How, how can we force our emotions to pay attention to our intellect? This is brilliant. This is exactly the right question and why I wrote my book about all of these emotional characteristics that if we understand are triggering our fears, we can see them for the foibles, if you will, of our rationality, and be self-aware that 
I know rationally I shouldn't be afraid, but I am afraid because it's new and because I don't have control. And that alone makes you stop, get a little more information, don't jump to your first conclusion, which is almost always going to be more emotion than reason. Stop, get more information, and then you'll make a healthier choice if you're aware in the first place that we have these built-in emotions, but they get in the way of the smartest decision for our health. That's perfect question. I was once given some advice, which I, I, has been useful for me, and I'm curious what you think, which is just when you're caught up in that storm of, of emotion or of worry about something, just giving yourself permission in a way to just def- defer that for a bit. So say, right, I'm just going to let today be today and I'll, I'll revisit this tomorrow. And, and because when you revisit something outside of that heightened emotion, that, that can allow the intellect to speak a little more clearly. What, what do you think about that precisely, sort of approach? Precisely. Well, well uh, it's not what I think. It's what the science of human cognition has taught us. So our brain likes to get away without having to do any more work than it really needs to. So it uses a lot of subconscious instincts and emotional characteristics to judge what the first few facts feel, and we jump to conclusions. And there our feelings are off to the races. Uh-oh, or not. But the second part of our brain is perfectly willing to do the work when called upon. It's called System 1 and System 2, but just think of it as two sections of the brain. They're not physical sections, two systems in the brain. So we tend to be reactionary and jump to conclusions. But we're able to do the reasoning, but it takes effort, conscious effort, to give ourselves permission, as you put it, or step back, as you put it, to consciously stop the easy, lazy first brain part, the cognitive science says, and add in the fact-finding and be careful about who you're finding your facts from, because there's a lot of information being spewed out there. Be, be cautious about whether the source is trustworthy. Right. But yes, to give reason more of a voice. Exactly right. You, you, could, you should have done the interview, Alex. You're spot on. <laughs> well, 8046 has got in touch asking a question, so <laughs> let's deal with this one. Is it weird, if I'm not worried at all, and think of those who fear the disease as overreactors. This is another portion of society that we're actually probably hearing less from because they're quietly going about their business without uh, making too much noise about it. Um, and, and perhaps just looking at all the people wearing masks with a certain level of scorn. What, what's your view of that? Dear 8046, you're absolutely right to think, am I weird to not be afraid? Because, frankly... There is a new virus that we don't know yet how readily it spreads or how readily it kills that is in your region of the country and almost certain to show up there. It requires a little bit of awareness. At this point, even for South Korea, as I understand the science and the medicine at the moment, the the evidence, not a lot of concern. So, no, you're not weird at all, but it does warrant any new epidemic has the potential of spread and significant health effects. So pay attention, but that's about all you need to do. And, and yeah, you're right. You're okay to be calm. <laughs> Let, let's look at a couple of other issues psychologically that maybe come up, not necessarily strongly associated with risk, but just the, uh, the, the psychological spin-off. So, for example, being in quarantine for um, 
weeks on end. I mean, I, I said earlier in the show, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be on that cruise ship off Japan right now, for example, just endlessly waiting to either show symptoms or, or succumb to boredom. I have no idea. It's really an interesting thing. The cruise ship is a really interesting experiment in the acceptance of quarantine. The research shows us that most people who are quarantined willingly accept that. Uh, A, because they're part of society and they realize that if somebody else was sick, they would want them to be quarantined, and this is a time when I have to put up with it. They don't like it, but they accept it. However, on the cruise ship, (laughs) where everybody's coughing at everybody else, you know, they have to stay in their bunks and their cabins. They can't even go out and about on the ship except for a few moments. That's a different environment altogether. That's a unique and bizarre sort of environment. Most people want to avoid being quarantined in the first place, but when asked to obey quarantine, do so willingly because that's a society that we all want to live in that works that way. Yeah. This also just jogged my mind towards behavioral and social conventions changing slightly, possibly just temporarily, but things like coughing in public while never welcome in your face before. Now it seems like it's slightly impolite just to cough in the room as someone else or you feel a bit awkward doing so. Um, do, you, do you think that um, actually social norms are temporarily changing quite significantly? Well, I wouldn't say quite significantly, but some, and this teaches another lesson, too. So when a risk is new, all of this stuff happens, such as coughing into your elbow instead of your hand. When we're aware of it, it's a bigger blip on our risk radar screen, we do change our behaviors. But I promise you that in six months, should this virus turn out to be the relatively minimal spreader and killer that it looks like it's going to be, people will be back to their old habits. And I'll give you one example of this. Several years ago, I know in the United States, there were stories around um, the shortage of regular influenza vaccine. Now, less than half the people who should get influenza vaccine do so. That's really low. And it kills several thousand people a year, more than that at a bad year. So most people aren't getting the vaccine. But now there were news stories saying there's going to be a shortage of the vaccine. Uh, The manufacturer had a problem. And people all of a sudden got in lines for the vaccine. Well, that was happening when the news was going on about the shortage. By the end of that season, they had to throw away 2 million unused doses because the lines went away when the awareness did. So, yes, we'll cough into our elbow for a while, but probably only a while. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really helpful interview, I hope, for many of us. David Rapake. My pleasure. Stay safe. Well, you too. And that title of the book if you want a little help in staying safe and managing the questions of safety how risky is it really why our fears don't always match the facts um we've got one more message here that i'll get to from shine now i think some people can try to take advantage of the situation spend time at the hospital and not work although you don't really have to have the virus yeah, I mean, maybe some people would do that. I, I think the hospital is generally not a great place to hang out if you're healthy, unless you're visiting someone or offering comfort, because uh, it's probably one of the places you're more likely to pick up uh, an illness, uh, serious or, or otherwise. Uh, but thank you very much for getting in touch with us. We'll continue with sport next.